Section 1 of the Interpretation of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud. Translated by A. A. Brell. Section 1. The Scientific Literature of Dream Problems. In the following pages, I shall demonstrate that there is a psychological technique which makes it possible to interpret dreams, and that on the application of this technique every dream will reveal itself as a psychological structure full of significance, and one which may be assigned to a specific place in the psychic activities of the waking state. Further, I shall endeavor to elucidate the processes which underlie the strangeness and obscurity of dreams, and deduce from these processes the nature of the psychic forces whose conflict or cooperation is responsible for our dreams. This done, my investigation will terminate, as it will have reached the point where the problem of the dream merges into more comprehensive problems, and to solve these we must have recourse to material of a different kind. I shall begin by giving a short account of the views of earlier writers on this subject, and of the status of the dream problem in contemporary science since in the course of this treatise I shall not often have occasion to refer to either. In spite of thousands of years of endeavor, little progress has been made in the scientific understanding of dreams. This fact has been so universally acknowledged by previous writers on the subject that it seems hardly necessary to quote individual opinions. The reader will find, in the works listed at the end of this work, many stimulating observations, and plenty of interesting material relating to our subject but little or nothing that concerns the true nature of the dream, or that solves definitely any of its enigmas. The educated layman, of course, knows even less of the matter. The conception of the dream that was held in prehistoric ages by primitive peoples, and the influence which it may have exerted on the formation of their conceptions of the universe and of the soul, is a theme of great interest that it is only with reluctance that I refrain from dealing with it in these pages. I will refer the reader to the well-known works of Sir John Lubbock, Herbert Spencer, E.B. Tyler, and other writers. I will only add that we shall not realize the importance of these problems and speculations until we have completed the task of dream interpretation that lies before us. A reminiscence of the concept of the dream that was held in primitive times seems to underlie the evaluation of the dream which was current among the peoples of classical antiquity. They took it for granted that dreams were related to the world of the supernatural beings in whom they believed, and that they brought inspirations from the gods and demons. Moreover, it appeared to them that dreams must serve a special purpose in respect of the dreamer, that, as a rule, they predicted the future. The extraordinary variations in the content of dreams and in the impressions which they produced on the dreamer made it, of course, very difficult to formulate a coherent conception of them, and necessitated manifold differentiations and group formations according to their value and reliability. The valuation of dreams by the individual philosophers of antiquity naturally depended on the importance which they were prepared to attribute to manticism in general. In the two works of Aristotle in which there is mention of dreams, they are already regarded as constituting a problem of psychology. We are told that the dream is not God-sent, that it is not of divine but of demonic origin, for nature is really demonic, not divine. And that is to say, the dream is not a supernatural revelation, but is subject to the laws of the human spirit, which has, of course, a kinship with the divine. The dream is defined as the psychic activity of the sleeper, inasmuch as he is asleep. Aristotle was acquainted with some of the characteristics of the dream life. For example, he knew that a dream converts the slight sensations perceived in sleep into intense sensations. One imagines that one is walking through fire and feels hot, if this or that part of the body becomes only quite slightly warm. 
which led him to conclude that dreams might easily betray to the physician the first indications of an incipient physical change which escaped observation during the day. As has been said, those writers of antiquity who preceded Aristotle did not regard the dream as a product of the dreaming psyche, but as an inspiration of divine origin, and in ancient times the two opposing tendencies, which we shall find throughout the ages in respect of the evaluation of the dream life, were already perceptible. The ancients distinguished between the true and valuable dreams, which were sent to the dreamer as warnings, or to foretell future events, and the vain, fraudulent, and empty dreams, whose object was to misguide him or lead him to destruction. Gruppe speaks of such a classification of dreams, citing Macrobius and Artemidorus. Dreams were divided into two classes. The first class was believed to be influenced only by the present or the past, and was unimportant in respect of the future. It included the anuknia, insomnia, which directly reproduce a given idea or its opposite, e.g. hunger or its satiation, and the phantasmata, which elaborate the given idea fantastically, as e.g. the nightmare, ephialtes. The second class of dreams, on the other hand, was determinative of the future. To this belonged, 1. Direct prophecies received in the dream. Chromatismus oraculum, 2. The foretelling of a future event, orama visio, 3. The symbolic dream which requires interpretation, oneros somnium. This theory survived for many centuries. Connected with these varying estimations of the dream was the problem of dream interpretation. Dreams in general were expected to yield important solutions but not every dream was immediately understood, and it was impossible to be sure that a certain incomprehensible dream did not really foretell something of importance, so that an effort was made to replace the incomprehensible content of the dream by something that should be at once comprehensible and significant. In later antiquity, Artemidorus of Daldis was regarded as the greatest authority on dream interpretation. His comprehensive works must serve to compensate us for the lost works of a similar nature. The pre-scientific conception of the dream which obtained among the ancients was, of course, in perfect keeping with their general conception of the universe, which was accustomed to project as an external reality that which possessed reality only in the life of the psyche. Further, it accounted for the main impression made upon the waking life by the morning memory of the dream. For in this memory, the dream, as compared with the rest of the psychic content, seems to be something alien, coming, as it were, from another world. It would be an error to suppose that theory of the supernatural origin of dreams lacks followers even in our own times, for quite apart from pietistic and mystical writers, who cling, as they are perfectly justified in doing, to the remnants of the once predominant realm of the supernatural until these remnants have been swept away by scientific explanation. We not infrequently find that quite intelligent persons who in other respects are averse from anything of a romantic nature go so far as to base their religious belief in the existence and cooperation of superhuman spiritual powers on the inexplicable nature of the phenomena of dreams. Hafner. The validity ascribed to the dream life by certain schools of philosophy, for example, by the school of Schelling, is a distinct reminiscence of the undisputed belief in the divinity of dreams which prevailed in antiquity. 
and for some thinkers, the mantic or prophetic power of dreams is still a subject of debate. This is due to the fact that the explanations attempted by psychology are too inadequate to cope with the accumulated material, however strongly the scientific thinker may feel that such superstitious doctrines should be repudiated. To write strongly the history of our scientific knowledge of the dream problem is extremely difficult, because Valuable though this knowledge may be in certain respects, no real progress in a definite direction is as yet discernible. No real foundation of verified results has hitherto been established on which future investigators might continue to build. Every new author approaches the same problems afresh and from the very beginning. If I were to enumerate such authors in chronological order giving a survey of the opinions which each has held concerning the problems of the dream, I should be quite unable to draw a clear and complete picture of the present state of our knowledge on the subject. I have therefore preferred to base my method of treatment on themes rather than on authors, and in attempting the solution of each problem of the dream I shall cite the material found in the literature of the subject. But as I have not yet succeeded in mastering the whole of this literature, for it is widely dispersed and interwoven with the literature of other subjects, I must ask my readers to rest content with my survey as it stands, provided that no fundamental fact or important point of view has been overlooked. Until recently, most authors have been inclined to deal with the subjects of sleep and dreams in conjunction, and together with these, they have commonly dealt with analogous conditions of a psychopathological nature and other dreamlike phenomena, such as hallucinations, visions, etc. In recent works, on the other hand, there has been a tendency to keep more closely to the theme and to consider as a special subject the separate problems of the dream life. In this change, I should like to perceive an expression of the growing conviction that enlightenment and agreement in such obscure matters may be attained only by a series of detailed investigations. Such a detailed investigation, and one of a special psychological nature, is expounded in these pages. I have had little occasion to concern myself with the problem of sleep, as this is essentially a physiological problem. Although the changes in the functional determination of the psychic apparatus should be included in a description of the sleeping state. The literature of sleep will therefore not be considered here. A scientific interest in the phenomena of dreams, as such, leads us to propound the following problems, which to a certain extent interdependent merge into one another. A. The relation of the dream to the waking state. The naive judgment of the dreamer on waking assumes that the dream, even if it does not come from another world, has at all events transported the dreamer into another world. The old physiologist, Burdock, to whom we are indebted for a careful and discriminating description of the phenomena of dreams, expressed this conviction in a frequently quoted passage. The waking life, with its trials and joys, its pleasures and pains, is never repeated. On the contrary, the dream aims at relieving us of these. Even when our whole mind is filled with one subject, when our hearts are rent by bitter grief, or when some task has been taxing our mental capacity to the utmost, the dream either gives us something entirely alien, or it selects for its combinations only a few elements of reality, or it merely enters into the key of our mood and symbolizes reality. J. H. Fichte speaks in precisely the same sense of supplementary dreams, calling them one of the secret self-healing benefits of the psyche. L. Strumpel expresses himself to the same effect in his Natur and Enstehung der Traum, a study which is deservedly held in high esteem. He who dreams turns his back upon the world of waking consciousness. 
In the dream, the memory of the orderly content of waking consciousness and its normal behavior is almost entirely lost. The almost complete and unencumbered isolation of the psyche in the dream from the regular normal content and course of the waking state. Yet the overwhelming majority of writers on the subject have adopted the contrary view of the relation of the dream to waking life. Thus, Hafner says, to begin with, the dream continues the waking life. Our dreams always connect themselves with such ideas as have shortly before been present in our consciousness. Careful examination will nearly always detect a thread by which the dream has linked itself to the experiences of the previous day. Why Gant flatly contradicts the statement of Burdock. For it may often be observed, apparently indeed in the great majority of dreams, that they lead us directly back into everyday life instead of releasing us from it. Mori expresses the same idea in a concise formula. Nous rêvons de ce que nous avons vu, dit, désiré ou fait. We dream of what we have seen, said, desired, or done. Jessen, in his Psychologie, published in 1855, is rather more explicit. The content of dreams is always more or less determined by the personality, the age, sex, station in life, education and habits, and by the events and experiences of the whole past life of the individual. The philosopher I.G.E. Maas adopts the most unequivocal attitude in respect of this question. Experience corroborates our assertion that we dream most frequently of those things toward which our warmest passions are directed. This shows us that our passions must influence the generation of our dreams. The ambitious man dreams of the laurels which he has won, perhaps only in imagination, or has still to win, while the lover occupies himself in his dreams with the object of his dearest hopes, all the sensual desires and loathings which slumber in the heart if they are stimulated by any cause, may combine with other ideas and give rise to a dream, or these ideas may mingle in an already existing dream. The ancients entertained the same idea concerning the dependence of the dream content on life. I will quote Radishtak. When Xerxes, before his expedition against Greece, was dissuaded from his resolution by good counsel, but was again and again incited by dreams to undertake it, one of the old rational dream interpreters of the Persians, Artabanus told him, and very appropriately, that dream images for the most part contain that of which one has been thinking in the waking state. In the didactic poem of Lucretius, On the Nature of Things, there occurs this passage, And whatever be the pursuit to which one clings with devotion, whatever the things on which we have been occupied much in the past, the mind being thus more intent upon that pursuit, it is generally the same things that we seem to encounter in dreams. Pleaders to plead their cause and collate laws, generals to contend and engage battle. The contradiction between these two views concerning the relation between dream life and waking life seems indeed irresolvable. Here we may usefully cite the opinion of F. W. Hildebrandt, 1875, who held that on the whole the peculiarities of the dream can only be described as a series of contrasts which apparently amount to contradictions. The first of these contrasts is formed by the strict isolation or seclusion of the dream from true and actual life on the one hand, and on the other hand by the continuous encroachment of the one upon the other, and the constant dependence of the one upon the other. The dream is something absolutely divorced from the reality experienced during the waking state. One may call it an existence hermetically sealed up and insulated from real life by an unbridgeable chasm. It frees us from reality, 
blots out the normal recollection of reality and sets us in another world and a totally different life which fundamentally has nothing in common with real life hildebrandt then asserts that in falling asleep our whole being with its forms of existence disappears as through an invisible trap-door in one's dream one is perhaps making a voyage to st helena in order to offer the imprisoned napoleon an exquisite vintage of moselle one is most affably received by the ex-emperor and one feels almost sorry when on waking the interesting illusion is destroyed but let us now compare the situation existing in the dream with the actual reality the dreamer has never been a wine merchant and has no desire to become one he has never made a sea voyage and st helena is the last place in the world that he would choose as the destination of such a voyage the dreamer feels no sympathy for napoleon but on the contrary a strong patriotic aversion and lastly the dreamer was not yet among the living when napoleon died on the island of st helena so that it was beyond the realms of possibility that he should have had any personal relations with napoleon the dream experience thus appears as something entirely foreign interpolated between two mutually related and successive periods of time nevertheless continues hildebrandt the apparent contrary is just as true and correct i believe that side by side with this seclusion and insulation there may still exist the most intimate interrelation we may therefore justly say whatever the dream may offer us it derives its material from reality and from the psychic life centered upon this reality however extraordinary the dream may seem it can never detach itself from the real world and its most sublime as well as its most ridiculous constructions must always borrow their elementary material either from that which our eyes have beheld in the outer world or from that which has already found a place somewhere in our waking thoughts in other words it must be taken from that which we have already experienced either objectively or subjectively end of section one recording by alicia in philadelphia